welcome to Talking Kotlin. It always cracks me up because they don't see this off stage. I, I keep counting and saying, hey, Seb. Hey, how are you? The amount of the amount of infrastructure work we do to try and get this show off, uh, like on the road is always, it's a lot. It's a lot of discussion to just it's, figure out who says Especially on the road part. We're always on the road. You know what? You know what? I, I look at your shirt and I'm like, Aruba, Jamaica, come on, won't you take her to Bahama, Bermuda? No, it's the other way around. <laughs> oh, no. You are so summery. Is it like summer in Munich? No, I still, I have this this idea that if I wear Hawaiian shirts um, for long enough, that summer will have to come automatically. It won't have another choice. Oh, I thought it was for you for me to sing the Beach Boys. I mean, also, sure. That works as well. That's always delightful. I just went swimming and you know, it's raining outside. I'm like, ah, screw it. Let's go swimming. So I just went swimming. Well, I'm glad you didn't get like struck by lightning or something. Why? So you would do the show alone. No, you're just trying to kick <laughs> me out every freaking week. You're trying to kick me off this show. And now it's just like, oh yeah, I hope you get struck by lightning. Fine. It's okay. <laughs> that is not what I said. You're not going to get rid of me that easily. Sorry. You were saying. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our YouTube audience, our SoundCloud audience, and wherever else you are listening to this podcast. Today, we have a wonderful guest. Uh, we are joined by Matt Anger, who's a senior staff engineer at DoorDash. Welcome, Matt. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for coming on. It's really sweet to have you here. <laughs> so, Kotlin and DoorDash. Do you want to give us like a, a short intro about what we maybe can talk about today in this context? Sure. Uh, I mean, at, at a high level, basically, DoorDash has gone all in on Kotlin. Um, we're rewriting the Android app in Kotlin. We're rewriting all of our new backend services in Kotlin. Um, you know, as as we migrate away from our monolith, um, which is a you know an older uh, Python Jacob uh, stack, we are we are kind of going all in on Kotlin as the 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 language that we want to use. So before we dive into all of that, let's maybe just for the few people in the audience that may not have heard about what DoorDash does, uh, do you want to give the, the elevator pitch? I know Hardy loves elevator pitches. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, the, the elevator pitch is really that uh, uh, DoorDash is, is, your, is your last mile logistics company. Um, it, it's most people know us for our consumer side, which is, you know, food delivery, but we, we also do other, you know, last mile delivery for, for businesses as well. Um, so the main thing is that, you know, with, within your city, if you need to get something from point A to point B, DoorDash can help. Sorry, I had to laugh just there because uh, I saw you said most people know us for our consumer products. And today I saw a tweet about uh, uh, how uh, Amazon had purchased MGM and someone had said, oh my God, so Amazon owns Robocop now. And when you said consumer <laughs> products, I'm like, but on our side business, we also do robots. Killer robots. No. Yes, but we don't use Kotlin in those killer robots, do we? Uh, we, we DoorDash is not involved in any, any sort of killer robots. No. <laughs> it's just the way he said, we do consumer products and killer robots. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm actually excited to have you on the show because uh, back end, right? You know, uh, when, when mm -hmm. back back in the early days when I started the show before Seb took it over, uh, we used to talk a lot about Android and people were like, Oh, what are you going to have some backend stuff? And, and, and when I saw your blog post about, uh, how, uh, DoorDash has adopted Kotlin on the backend, I was like super jiggly. I don't know if jiggly is a word, but I was like super <laughs> jiggy. And I'm like, we got to get, 
we've got to get Matt on the show and, and talk a little bit about this. Uh, so right off the bat, did it start with Android or did it start with server side at DoorDash? Mm, I'm trying, I think, I think we actually had the Android team moving first, honestly. So it was, it was kind of like the, the Android, the Android team, you know, they, they wanted to do their thing. And then the backend team was kind of like, okay, it's time for us to start breaking up our monolith. What do we choose? But the Android team had already started their rewrite. Then maybe the, the, the question that's, that's burning on everyone's mind is, uh, then why Kotlin? Why did you end up choosing Kotlin? I mean, great choice, but why? Yeah, uh, I mean, for us, it, we, we really came down to a, a couple of factors, right? We, we were trying to find what language can we have that's going to, you know, scale with the company, scale with our, you know, increased number of requests per second, and, and just, you know, give us the right amount of, you know, developer productivity for the performance that we, you know, trying to balance those trade-offs. Um, and, and for us, the reason why we chose Kotlin was mainly because it's, we, in our minds, we think of it like a, a better Java. Right, like that. That's at a, at a high level. That that's how we that's how we came down to it. We can interact with the entire JVM ecosystem. We can use a lot of the libraries and a lot of the integrations that we already have. Right. We we are we use Cassandra. We use Postgres. We use Kafka. Um, all these things that have you know great Java and JVM integrations, and we can still use all those and use them natively with Kotlin while getting some of the benefits of you know a slightly nicer syntax, some more functional aspects, immutable by default. Um, so some of these things that you get in, in the Kotlin ecosystem, and and then on top of that, coroutines, which we use heavily for a lot of our services to make you know our asynchronous programming look a little bit more in the kind of imperative style that our a lot of our engineers are used to. So at a high level, that that's really what it was. It was like it was for us. It was the the better Java. But your background was, uh, or at least the server side stuff that you were using in the past, the, the language was Python, right? And how was that change? I mean, like, you know, Python is a dynamic language, a static language. How did the team embrace that? Uh, it, it wasn't actually too hard, right? We had, a lot of our engineers already had experience with, um, you know, statically typed languages, you know, be it C++, be it Java, be it... Uh, and so it wasn't too hard for us to kind of transition them over and start thinking in, in Kotlin and start thinking in the... the and basically, the, the hardest part was actually more uh, having, teaching them to adopt some of the functional aspects of Kotlin. Right, having them deal with types wasn't so wasn't wasn't as hard as it was. Okay, no, no, let, let's look at functional. Let's look at immutable by default. Uh, trying to ingrain some of those kind of behaviors into them was actually the 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 I guess the harder sell. Okay, as a complete new op to uh, Python, there aren't like high order functions in Python, and it's not very functional in that sense. Or you just weren't using it. Uh, I mean, we we use some of those, right? Like for comprehensions and things like that. And you can have single line lambdas in, in Python. Um, but obviously, like thinking like immutable by default, right? Make sure everything is immutable by default as you pass it through the stack, so that you you know you don't have to deal with you know sharing across threads and things like that. Like that's that's really not a thing in the Python world, right? It, things can be reassigned, things can be modified at any time, right? The the idea of immutability is. Is sort of an uh, an oddity in the Python world, right? You have to manually declare it as a frozen set or a frozen map and things like that. Um, and, and in Python, it's like no. Or I'm sorry, in Kotlin, your your maps are immutable by default. Your lists are immutable by default. Your sets are immutable by default. Uh, the, and so you know, teaching them to think that way, and you know, getting away from the declaring a variable and then maybe having some if chain or a switch chain that determines its final value and using the, the more functional aspects, right? Where you can have an immutable variable and it can be assigned to essentially like a, almost like a Lambda or like an if statement or a case statement. 
um, you know, teaching them to use that that behavior versus you know declaring it as a var and doing it the way they used to. How did you actually like teach these kind of changes to your to your team? Is this something where you did like a couple of courses, or you're doing like trying out pair programming, uh, code reviews? What what was kind of the, the main uh, way of of switching there? We we did a little bit of all of that, right? So we we did um, we we call lunch and learns, uh, where we kind of do like 45 minute, um, you know, basically having a senior engineer or someone who's an expert in, on a particular field kind of do a small presentation for like 45 minutes over lunch. And we, we have those like two to three times a week, depending on like how, how many people want to speak. Um, so we did a lot of those. We have a, a series of like internal um, kind of like Kotlin best practices, trying to teach people, okay, this is how you should think of things, like showing them examples in the, you know, we've seen these bad practices, try to avoid viruses like that, and then showing them how to kind of directly translate that, that behavior. Um, we also heavily use linters that kind of tried to detect a lot of the stuff for us, right? There's, there's a lot of good, um, you know, versions of like KTLint and detect, and we, we use kind of slightly different ones in different repos, but trying to detect things like, you know, bad formatting, they, they have some nice code smell, they call it, you know, lints that they can try to detect for us. And so like heavily in push, pushing those throughout our entire code base to help try and, you know, detect some of these things and catch them without relying on humans to do it all for us. And you said that the the architect you were kind of combining this, so you were combining the the change of architecture and the change of language at the same time. Did you feel that that was like an additional challenge, or did you feel that Kotlin actually maybe made this easier? Um, I don't think so. I think it was an additional challenge, right? I mean, we were going to have to rewrite everything as we were moving to services anyway. So we may as well take the time to look at okay, well, what what makes sense for us to, to do the rewrite, right? We don't necessarily just want to copy paste the code that, that wasn't our own monolith and just kind of put it somewhere else, right? Like that that's not going to lead to a good service experience. We're, we're going to have to deal with a whole bunch of issues that we don't want to deal with as we, you know, start moving things away from like all talking to the same database, all being in the same code base, right? You you can't just copy paste anyway. You have to rethink and re-architect your services as you're, as you're breaking apart your monolith. And so it, it wasn't necessarily any additional challenge kind of moving that to a different language. So you had a big monolith in Python, essentially, and you decided to go full out, you know, not only change language, but also, also change architecture, move to microservices, I guess, uh, in this end. And, and looking through the blog post, you make use of uh, interesting set of technologies. One of them is, I didn't even know about this. Uh, Seb, we've got to get these folks on. The, I, I don't even know how you pronounce this. Is this Croto Plus? Croto Plus. Oh, uh, yeah. And Protoproft. Okay, what, what what are these? Um, basically, these are sort of Kotlin enhancements to the the gRPC and the Protobuf ecosystem. Um, so for for the long time, um, traditionally when you wanted to use Protobuf for gRPC in Kotlin, you had to use the Java bindings, which don't necessarily behave the best in in the Kotlin world. They look a little funny, right, with the the way they do the builder pattern and, and some of this stuff. Um, and so these are two open source libraries that we use in combination to kind of build a much more Kotlin native experience um, for our gRPC and protobuf integrations. Um, so we you you can use this stuff, and then you were able to get like um, suspendable function handlers for your your services that implement gRPC endpoints and, and things like that. Obviously, today we now have gRPC Kotlin, and so we're we're, we're rapidly migrating kind of away from those into the the native gRPC Kotlin. Um, but prior to you know gRPC's Kotlin's GA, which is just earlier this year, um, these two libraries basically helped us turn the the gRPC Java and the Protobuf Java into much more uh, Kotlin friendly, Kotlin native integrations. 
that sounds really useful, actually. Um, we'll definitely add those to the show notes. And by the way, I'm not sure if we actually mentioned it. Uh, Hadi said he was looking through the blog post. Uh, we're probably going to link that blog post in the show notes as well if people want to check that. I think it's like microservices is a really hot topic for people just as like an architectural pattern. And I don't think it's any different if we're looking at, at Kotlin for server side. Do you have any kind of like general like tips and tricks for people who are looking into building their microservice architecture with, with Kotlin specifically? Some patterns you want to recommend maybe? I mean, I think the one of the biggest things that I, I think, especially as you're moving from, if you're moving from a monolith to, to services, one of the biggest things I think to, to make sure you get right is, is understanding where you want to draw those boundaries. And, and if possible, you can start to enforce those boundaries in your monolith first so that you can kind of understand where, where those cross points are. So you can make sure that you're extracting the right thing. Um, I mean, we, we don't go full what I would consider microservices, what some people consider microservices. We kind of have like service domains is the way we've kind of split things out, where we kind of have, you know, think of like a bunch of mini monoliths, um, where we have like a, a, set of, a set of services that are all tightly coupled that are responsible for like some of our geo-tracking things. And we have a set of services that are, you know, tightly coupled that are all responsible for uh, the logistics side of our, our platform. And being able to kind of split those domains out uh, within your monolith and having those kind of tight service boundaries will really help you um, as you're doing the migration. Because then you can, if you if you hide some of the stuff around behind like classes and functions, then you're just modifying one code piece. And you're saying, oh, this, this, this becomes, instead of just some raw database call, now it's a, a gRPC call to some other service. You can easily, you know, shade traffic back and forth and do traffic replays and stuff like that. So I think that's the the biggest thing that I always recommend is like try to try to enforce some of those boundaries that you're gonna eventually become services in your monolith first, um, and then from there, as you're doing services, the big thing is just um, having a, a good way to kind of communicate between those services and understanding where where the failure points of those are. Right. Oh, you say that some of the big things people forget is like they don't build in circuit breakers. Uh, they don't build in, you know, retries and backoffs. And, and then when you don't have some of these features, when you're talking service to service, you you often end up with what is traditionally called like the stampeding herd problem, where if one service has a hiccup, suddenly you, you, if you don't retries with backoffs, then you start slamming, and you take down like your entire fleet of pods, which is not helpful. You, you know, you're not really getting any of that resiliency you were hoping to get from a services architecture. I was going to ask, what server-side technology did you actually use in, in terms of uh, the framework? Is it Spring-based or is it something else? Right now, we have a little bit of everything. Uh, <laughs> we, we weren't very prescriptive in the very beginning as, as we split out our services. And so we have a, a, a mixture, um, depending on kind of what the different tech lays on the various teams shows. So we have some Spring, we have some Micronaut, we have some that just kind of use gRPC, Netty, and and like use something like um, Google's Juice dependency injection framework to kind of build the services up. Um, going forward, um, our, our dev prod and Kotlin platform teams have been focused on building a, what we call like our next generation based server, which is using um, a framework called Armuria. They're using Armuria from the folks over at Line and, and Juice as a dependency injection framework. And, and going forward, all of our services will be based upon that. Line is the company in Japan you're referring to, no? Yep. Yeah, the, the the like the the chat platform company. Yeah, awesome, awesome people in there once. Nice. I haven't heard of Armeria. That's another one we've got to get on the show, Seb. Yeah. Are you taking notes, Seb? Uh, sure, always <laughs> mentally. Always right. So how how did you actually end up then then choosing choosing this library as like the the base for for your new services? Was there a particular reason? 
Um, so there was a couple of things that really attracted us to it. Um, one is the its ability to serve both gRPC and HTTP off of the same port and same event loop, um, which is useful for us because obviously, like I said, for our for service to service communication, we rely on gRPC, but we've also been migrating to Prometheus for our metrics. Um, and so for Prometheus, right, generally you want to have a, a HTTP endpoint, which outputs the metrics that you have a scraper that, that can then parse. And so rather than having to split up like a second event loop in all of our pods, uh, Amira lets us serve both of those kind of off of one event loop. Um, on top of that, we had, we had already started adopting Armira for the client side. Um, they have some really nice client side integrations for, for gRPC and HTTP that we had, we had already started using outside of this to provide, um, you know, better gRPC clients with a lot of our defaults and a lot of our interceptors that we had written over the years uh, pre-baked in. And, and when you use the client and the server side, they have some nice integrations that go well together. Um, with you know, they can help uh, propagate some error information back and forth, so you can do debugging easier if there's a failure or anything like that. And in this awesome blog post, which I like, this is for people. You see, if people aren't aware of this blog post, they don't need to read it anymore because we've got this show. But uh, if you have read the blog post, well, you should be watching the show anyway. Uh, but you talk about some of the gotchas, right? So generally, you're happy with Kotlin, uh, but you talk about some of your pain points. What, what are these pain points? Um, so some of the pain points we've had is um, what one is what we call the the, the phantom NIO libraries. Um, and, and so when we're talking with Java libraries and we're using sort of you know wrapping some sort of Java library to do maybe a database access or something like that. Some of these libraries that have claimed to support kind of NIO natively weren't really doing like using the Java NIO primitives. And so they're essentially kind of like thread pools on top of block. And that, that's how they, that's how they provided that, you know, completable future style interface. Um, and the problem that we ran into was with, with these kind of libraries, if you're spinning up a lot of coroutines and doing kind of like the map complete all, um, style of approach with a lot of these coroutines is, it would cause their thread pools to explode. And then that would cause a massive increase in memory usage on our pods, which would then get killed because they'd run out of memory and, and, and things like that. So we had to kind of curate a list of kind of libraries that we've, you know, we've worked with and that we know how to tune appropriately or that we know implement like kind of NIO natively so that we, we can use them with our coroutine style architecture and not experience that explosion in memory usage due to like spinning up a ton of threads. Another one that we're, we're still dealing with today is sort of um, just kind of how, I guess, Gradle does pendency resolution. We've run into it a few times where, like, by default, Gradle likes to just kind of up versions to the latest version it sees in any of your transitive dependencies. And sometimes libraries don't necessarily like that. So part of what we're doing to help fix that is in, internally, we publish kind of a bill of materials, we, you know, a, a bomb as part of our new server base that ties a whole bunch of these library versions together that we provide work. Um, and, and part of that so that, you know, we don't run into these issues where, you know, some transitive dependencies messing up the, the chain, but also it helps us solve, like, if there is a security concern with a particular version of the library, we update once in the bomb, make sure that it works everywhere, and then everyone just kind of gets that automatically, um, rather than having to go through each and every individual teams and, like, upping the version in all of their libraries. So it's like, no, no, just up the bomb to the latest version, and you'll, you'll get all the list of changes with all the security fixes and things like that. Is it a challenge? Is, is, is the whole Gradle Maven thing a challenge? I mean, like, sorry, but Java, like JavaScript even has a build system. I mean, they call it uh, packages.json, where they, they've gone from just managing packages to also telling it what to do, no? Uh, so isn't there something similar in, in, in Python, where you can like do steps of what to do next? 
not so much in Python. In Python, generally, you have like a requirements.txt. You do a pip install with the requirements file. It installs all your dependencies with whatever version you've told it to. And then you just call Python and like your, your, your main.py. So how did they find Gradle? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's like I said, it's been challenging, right? The like the the biggest issue has has mainly been around like you know libraries that we have that you know are shared or that we try to release common libraries. And if you update the version in any one of these, and some down libraries or some other teams haven't necessarily updated to try your latest changes, we we have to kind of work with them at times to 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 figure out okay, how do we get this? Which is which is why I said like we're publishing this bomb going forward to help kind of eliminate yeah. this, right? We'll tie all the versions together for our common stuff. And it will take care of providing, you know, compatibility where we need to. And, and you just rely on importing this bomb and let us specify the versions of your underlying uh, packages. Right. But apart from the dependency management, they didn't really find Gradle itself challenging or the concept of having to do these build and uh, defining the configuration blocks and all of these. Nothing. That was all good. Uh, I mean, for the most part, we hit a lot of that stuff from them. So we we actually have a, a script that generates the base repo with a Gradle file, with a Docker file, with um, scripts for our CI and CD pipelines. Um, so for the most part, you know, they, they, they don't even really see a lot of this stuff. We also give them a make file so they can just type make build and we'll run the appropriate Gradle command with the appropriate environment variables and things like that. So we, we, we hit a lot of that stuff from them to make it as easy as possible. But it's very clear that you folks have 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 bought really deeply into uh, into the whole ecosystem, which I think is really exciting. So going forward, are you folks planning on keeping all of your services uh, in your microservice architecture in Kotlin, or do you have like a heterogeneous uh, architecture in mind with some other languages in the mix? Um, it, it'll likely be like ninety nine percent Kotlin. There'll be a few one off services there that, for for a variety of reasons, may be in another language. Um, we, for example, we have some Go um, for some certain instances where we have or things where we're interacting with, like say the Kubernetes API. Um, we also have some Scala for some ML AI and like you know batch big processing, really where you have like where Scala is super useful in that scenario. Um, but most of our services are going to be Kotlin. And uh, just to correct what Seb said, he said collection of monoliths, not microservices. Did I? No. Collect no no. Matt said you said a collection of like small monoliths, right? Small monoliths, yeah. Small monoliths, right? <laughs> so knowing what you know now, what decisions would you have made differently? Apart from not coming on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like I said, the, the only things that kind of would have, we would have probably done earlier would have been um, probably publishing the bomb from day one, right? Just kind of getting that set up and ha having teams kind of tie together what versions we're using would probably have, have solved uh, quite a few hours of headaches that we've had to deal with at times. Uh, but like other than that, for the most part, we're, we're super happy with it, right? It, it's, it's scaling extremely well for us. We've gotten, you know, our QPS on a per core basis, moving to Kotlin and, and setting these things up. We're seeing better reliability. Um, so overall, we're, we're extremely happy. Okay, I have another question for you. Sorry, Seb. Um, no, go ahead. Uh, now, I want a real honest answer from you. How do you find the tooling for Kotlin in terms of the IDE? Uh, do, do you want me to be completely honest on that? <laughs> I want you to be 110% honest on this. Um, I... I I have mixed feelings about IntelliJ, honestly. Uh, in, in times, it is extremely useful and it is extremely powerful. I've used it outside of Kotlin in, in personal projects for Go, for Ross and stuff like that. And, and it can be very powerful. 
it, 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 it is obviously a very heavy process with everything that it comes in, right? When you boot it up, it, you know, for most of our projects, we have, you know, IntelliJ set up to take like eight gigs of RAM as soon as it boots up, um, just to deal with some of our larger projects. Um, it, it is a little bit more CPU heavy than other ones. Um, the, the main thing that I would love if the e Python ecosystem, not Python, Kotlin ecosystem had, I guess, I guess like a language server would be great. I know there's like a one third party one. Uh, but but sometimes like I don't necessarily need or want to boot up the entire IntelliJ to make a quick change. Um, I, I'm a I'm a little bit old school. I have, I have a very complicated Vim setup that you know builds a whole ton of stuff. And so sometimes I just want to open Vim quickly, make some changes, and it'd be great to have at least you know some basic code completion and stuff like that built in. Um, that that's something that I would love to have. Um, but it, overall, I mean IntelliJ works pretty well. Occasionally, it has hiccups where it's like, well, I guess you just have to restart it, um, and like that, that's kind of what you have to do every once in a while if it's not pulling the right environment variables. For example, like your our credentials for um, our personal artifactory or, or things like that. But for the most part, it, it, like I said, it's extremely powerful. Its ability to refactor things is really well, um, but it, it is a little heavy in, in terms of like what it, what it takes on your system. Okay. I mean, that's interesting because I, I was thinking uh, if you have any issues in terms of refactoring or things like that where you uh, felt uh, it, it wasn't on par with Java. Uh, but, uh, and generally all of the, all of the team use IntelliJ or that there's folks on Eclipse or other systems? All, all these no, systems. everyone uses IntelliJ. Uh, yeah. We don't, we don't have anyone using Eclipse or anything like that. Like I said, there, there's those of us that are a little bit more old school where we're occasionally hopping into like Vim and whatnot. But for the most of our developers are just using IntelliJ on their day to day. But you just gave me a brilliant idea, right? Uh, people always ask like, um, you know, what is the right size for a microservice? We could, we could just define it, whatever fits into IntelliJ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so full of good ideas today. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Seth, you wanted to say something. So, so Kotlin still evolves quite quickly. I think. Are you folks like always on the bleeding edge? They're always using the latest versions, or are you taking a bit of a more conservative approach? It it, it kind of varies. We we already have some services migrated to one five. And, and we've been fairly happy with it. Um, we do have some older services that just haven't migrated that are selling like one three. Um, in particular, the one three to one four shift where you guys change some things around serializable has been kind of painful for certain teams. Uh, but for the for the most part, we, we try as as much as possible. And looking at kind of the the way that that the language and the ecosystem kind of evolves, is there any particular topic that you are specifically looking forward to, or that you can't wait until a, a version of it gets released? I the the one thing that I I would love is if um, we kind of had the the coroutine everywhere kind of view of the world, which I, I don't know if that's on any roadmaps, but it, you can imagine similar to kind of like what Rust has had now with like async main or what you get it with a Go program where you just kind of have natively coroutines everywhere. And you don't really have to think about, is this function in a suspend function or not? Do I need to call, you know, threadpool.execute and like pass it off and then get the future and stuff like that. Right? We're just kind of like everything was suspendable by default. Um, like I said, so similar to what you get kind of with the goal world, where like I can call go functions and I can call blocking functions anywhere I want. Um, and, and to have that kind of behavior, I think would be kind of cool and, and kind of useful to have that where like everything is async. That's, that's interesting. I have to admit, I have not heard that one before. Maybe, maybe Roman is listening in. Maybe. Maybe he'll use this as inspiration and he'll thank you, thank you in a bit. I don't know. <laughs> Seth, 
Seb, I, I hate to break this to you, but this isn't a live show. Roman isn't listening in. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like, he can still listen to the recording. By the way, Matt, on a side note, um, if you do have performance problems, really, uh, with IntelliJ, send us memory snapshots. We'll fix it. Promise. Okay, no, I'm, I'm not going to promise, but we'll look at it. Right? <laughs> really. <laughs> we'll try and we'll try, we'll try and fix those. <laughs> yeah, we will. We will. Seriously, send it to us because uh, um, you know if there's shortcomings in the refactoring and all that, we're getting to it. But performance problems, we want to try and fix as soon as possible. So please do uh, send us that. You know, you know, we want to make your microservice as big as a monolith possible, right? <laughs> really big. Yeah. Cool. So uh, what's next for DoorDash and what's next for, uh, well, Kotlin in, in terms of what you folks are doing? What do you have planned? Um, like I said, we're, we're, still, we're still fully pulling apart our monolith. So we'll have more services coming up, finishing all those extractions and kind of getting forward. And then the next thing, we'll be migrating all of the services to this new service base that, we, that we've been talking about, right? This, this Armeria-based framework and kind of getting that rolled out everywhere where we have this, this common framework that's powering all of our services with you know distributed tracing and Prometheus metrics and, and all those wonderful things enabled that we can really understand kind of everything that's going on. Well, I think we're actually out of time for this episode. Uh, so before we say goodbye, are there any more topics uh, like maybe open source projects or something that you want to shout out specifically for DoorDash in, in combination with Kotlin? I, I don't think so. Like I said, we, we've 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 interacted a little bit with some of the open source ecosystems, and we're we're extremely happy with it, right? We've we've had some things upstream into, like, say, the open telemetry work streams and stuff like that, and it's it's been great. So the whole ecosystem is just uh, a pleasure to work with. Cool. Then uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think we've learned a lot about Kotlin, about microservices, and about DoorDash. That was a really interesting combination of topics. Um, yeah, and thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for coming on. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. And for everyone else listening out there, we hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back next time. Don't forget to hit that bell, like, subscribe. Did you get the bell? You fixed, know, I hit that notification thing. No, I didn't. I hit that notification thing on some other channel. And the damn phone the other day vibrated saying there's a new video. I mean, that's kind of the point. <laughs> oh, then, then switch off that notification. You don't want to be interrupted that there's a new video of Seb and Hardy. Oh, we should change the name of the show. We should call it the Seb and Hardy Show. Did you? Have you? Are you too old? To, are you too young to watch The Simpsons? No, I'm not too young to watch The Simpsons. You're too young for The Simpsons, aren't you? Oh, Maybe okay. that's going to be the intro in the, in the next one, though. Sebby, we'll see. Sebby and Hardy Show. <laughs> see you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye bye.